All right. Ecclesiastes is where we are. Chapter 5. The preacher Solomon is going to be talking to us today about where the pursuit of riches gets us or lands us. Uh, this particular section, uh, we're going to be going from verse, chapter 5, verse 8, all the way into chapter 6, verse 9. And the reason for that is because there's a Hebrew structure called a chiasm or a chiastic form of writing that's being employed here. And, and that doesn't, there's not going to be a test, so you don't have to remember this. But just so you know, the method to the madness, this is meant to be taken together. And the way that a chiasm works, it's different than the way we like to learn as Westerners. We like point one, two, three, four, and then give me that conclusion. The way they would do this is they would have point one, two, three, four, the conclusion, and then they would back out kind of with a mirror image of those points with point, you know, five, six, seven, eight. So it looks kind of funny. We're not going to do it that way. I'm going to do it the good old-fashioned Western way, and I'm going to give you all the points, and then we're going to back up to the conclusion. So if you're just wondering what, what we're up to, that's what we're up to. Ecclesiastes is a book where Solomon has gone ahead of us and tried out all of these roadways and pathways that, that look promising. And when he got to the end and found out they weren't, he graciously comes back and, and puts dead end signs up for us so that we can know there's no life down that path. This, this is a waste of time. And if we're willing to listen to him, he's going to save us a lot of heartache. The pursuit of riches is one of those paths that looks so promising but it ends up being a dead end. In fact, like a cliff that, that will hurt us. Now, remember that the point of Ecclesiastes is that if we leave God out of the equation and this is all that there is, then everything is meaningless. Of course, as Christians, we know that this is not all that there is, but sometimes we act like it is and we look for meaning and purpose and fulfillment in the things of this world. And money is one of those places that we look. Now, we need to remember who's writing this to us. Um, Solomon was not a guy that was just scraping by, living paycheck to paycheck, you know, hoping to make ends meet. That's not who Solomon was. This guy knows what he's talking about. He had more riches than we will ever know. He's the one warning us of the dangers and the emptiness of this pathway. Now, I would ask you guys not to do that thing we do where you excuse yourself from the topic. It's like you just kind of like, excuse me, you know, maybe excuse from the table, please. This doesn't apply to me because I don't have that much money. I'm not rich. I don't, you know, that's not always the case. So what I'm going to just challenge you with is if you've ever been discontent with your current situation and, and if you've ever thought that what you have is not enough and that if only you could have a little more, this applies to you. I know it applies to me. I can't tell you all the times where I've thought to myself, you know what, if, I, if we just had a little bit more money, a little bit more stuff, then we would have that, that real satisfaction we've been looking for and that security that we've wanted. And, and I, when you do that, you see money is the answer. And, and I've done that more times than I care to admit. Still do it. So that's going to be the main theme of what we look at this morning. But Solomon starts out in verses 8 and 9 by letting us in on a little secret that might not be that much of a secret. He's going to let us know that greed, corruption, and oppression are part of what we can expect in this broken world, especially when the pursuit of riches is, is the goal. And, and we see this everywhere we look, quite frankly. Ecclesiastes 5.8 starts out and says this. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and yet they are higher ones over him. But this is gain for the land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. I used to work for a very large corporation 
Uh, it was called ICON, I-K-O-N, and it, it, we, it stood for I Know One Name because they were swallowing up all these different companies. And that's, but we called the, we thought it stood for I Know Only Numbers because that's what they acted like. They, uh, I remember the point where it became clear to me that they didn't care about the customers. They didn't care about the employees. All they cared about were the stockholders because ultimately that's where the money was to be made. And it was a pretty disheartening thing to come to the conclusion of. And everybody kind of knew it. My boss knew it, but he couldn't do anything about it. You know why? Because his boss told him, this is what I need from you. Go make it happen. And that guy's boss did the same thing, and it went all the way up the chain. And then you just had the lowly workers down below kind of putting up with it all. And we see this kind of same, the same mindset, I think, in our government. Um, the same principle applies. The idea is to grab as much power and as much money as you can and, you, and, you know, pretend like you care about, you know, the, the little people, the people at the end of the food chain, but it do, they don't really, it doesn't seem like it. This has existed in our broken world since it broke and it's going to continue to exist until Jesus returns. So Solomon is saying, don't be shocked by that. Don't be amazed by it when you see it. it. It's going to be there, even though it's incredibly frustrating. Now, he doesn't say just throw your hands up and say, well, then what's the point of doing anything good? That's not what we're supposed to do. Uh, there may be times when God uses us as Christians to help the poor and to stand up for the oppressed. There may be times when he uses us to bring justice or to make a stand for righteousness. If he's calling us to that and we have that opportunity, we should take that as Christians. But the point is he's trying to let us know this is too big of a hole for us to fill. There's people out there that are devoting all of their time and effort to this kind of stuff. And it's like just, you know, it's like taking a shovel and trying to fill the Grand Canyon. You're not going to be able to fix it because this world isn't fixable. But we as Christians don't need to despair over this. We can take heart because we're looking forward to a better king and a better kingdom. And you know what's not going to exist there? Corruption, oppression, injustice. And unrighteousness, it will not be a part of where we are and what we're looking forward to. Praise God for that, right? So verse 9 is, is kind of difficult for scholars to interpret. And depending on what translation you go to, you'll find various things said here. But I'm going to try to um, tell you what I think it means. I think the idea is that there is a benefit for everyone if you do have a leader that tries to keep corruption and oppression and, and things like this in check. So a king committed to cultivated fields means that he sees the value of those that are at the bottom of the social ladder and making sure that they're taken care of because he sees how they benefit the whole of society if they're if they're looked out for. Does that make sense? We're beginning to kind of see this right now in our own time where all of a sudden like truck drivers aren't driving their trucks anymore and grocery store workers aren't stocking the shelves anymore and restaurant workers aren't coming to work anymore and we're going, wait a minute, you know, what? And, you know, it's frustrating, right? And we're even seeing the importance of things like law enforcement officers. When, when they stop, you know, showing up to work or not doing their job, things start to go south. So it's, it's nice when, when, when we value every person. And as Christians, this is how we're supposed to always be. It doesn't matter if you're the CEO of a, of a large company or the garbage man. Everyone is created in the image of God and has value because of that. And so we should show proper respect to, to every person, everybody. God especially wants us to have a heart for the orphan and the widow. We see that throughout the scriptures because they represent those who can't help themselves in society, the most marginalized among us. And so that's who Christians should be always. If no one else will help them, we will. We are that kind of people. And I see this in the church, this church, all the time. Since we've started, this has been the kind of church that actually does this. 
And we need to continue to be that kind of church that is always looking to how we can help people that need the help around us. One of the great things that's coming up for us is the warming center in Lapine is going to be starting up probably in December. There's a lot of work to be done to the building, and there's going to be an opportunity for us to help people that can't help themselves and to show them the love of Christ, which validates our testimony, which kind of gives credence to the fact that we really are of Christ. The way we love people, the way we love God makes a difference. So, so that's all exciting stuff that's coming up. Now, in verse 10, the preacher begins to warn those who are looking for satisfaction down that path that we talked about, who are trying to pursue riches as the meaning of life and, and the answer to their problems. Um, but he wants us to know that just like trying to chase down and capture wind in your arms, it's, it's just a pointless venture. And so he's going to give us all these reasons why we shouldn't go down that path. And I borrowed from the outline of a guy named Daniel Aiken, who's written a commentary called Exalting Jesus in Ecclesiastes. I just took the outline because it was better than what I had. And so I'm giving credit where credit's due. The first reason that he gives why pursuing riches is, is a waste of our time is that you'll never have enough. And we see that in verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. You see, Solomon, with all that he had, came to this conclusion. And you might be tempted to think, you know what? Maybe he wasn't doing it right. Maybe, Lord, give me what you gave to Solomon, and I'll take a crack at it. And I might do it different. But I want you to know Solomon is not the only guy that came to this conclusion. Uh, have you ever heard of J.D. Rockefeller? He was a, uh, the founder of the Standard Oil Company and, it, and is still considered to be the wealthiest American that's ever lived. Because if you take what his net worth was then and put it in today's dollars, it was over $400 billion, like $430 billion that this guy had. Just in way of comparison with the richy riches of today, guys like Musk and Gates and Bezos, you know, the biggies, they, hadn't even, they haven't even cracked 200. So just perspective-wise, I know, poor fellas. I don't know. I don't know how they do it, but I just wanted, I mean, I thought about this. Let, let's say Rockefeller was 40 years old when he got to that 400 billion mark, and he lived to be 80. I don't know how long he lived. But that's, you know, a billion a year. Could you, could you scrape by on that? I mean, it's just crazy to think about. 400 billion. Now listen to what he said, though. This is important. Somebody once asked him, how much money is enough? And he said, just a little bit more. Isn't that crazy? (laughs) Yeah. So money can't buy happiness or security, but if we think it can, we will not give up on that quest. We cannot give up on that quest. And that's what you see happening here. The next thing Solomon says is that those who pursue riches, you will attract leeches. When you do this, there's a, I love the verse in Proverbs 30, 15. It says the leech has two daughters, give and give. It's like, gimme, gimme, gimme. And they never stop with that. So verse 11 says, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has the owner, but to see them with his eyes. So the idea is all the guy can do is just stand there and watch it happen. You know, goods come in, goods go out. Just as and he's just, that's all he can do is just watch it take place. Can't do anything about it. We see the same idea of the leech thing going on when, when somebody wins big in the lottery. You know, they get the ticket and they got the check and, and all of a sudden third cousins and people, family members and friends they haven't seen for years come out of the woodwork to be, you know, hey, if you need me to be there for you to help with anything, I'm, I'm you know, I'm your man. We do that, right? Leeches start coming. Uh, the IRS man, <laughs> he wants his. It's a big old leech. Nothing personal. If you're a tax collector, I'm sorry. 
But they, they want theirs. I'm just learning about capital gains tax right now and how <sighs> terrifying that is. Another story. Even the idea of, you know, you think you, you'll get more that you'll, you know, you won't lose it. You, this thing, won't, this process won't go on. But what, what happens when you get a bigger house? You get this big house with all these bathrooms and rooms. Well, you don't have time to clean that. You can't be bothered with that. You're trying to make money. So what do you got to do? You got to hire a staff. You need a butler. I mean, it come for, how can you get by without that? You simply clean all these things. So you, you got to, that's going to cost you money. The more stuff you get, where am I going to keep all this? I need more land. I need barns. I need places to put this. And you kind of see how it goes. Um, I've noticed this pattern in my own life that every time we make more, we spend more. I'll, I'll think to myself, you know, only if we had like two or three hundred dollars more a month, it would make such a big difference. And, and we get that. And then it's like you get sucked out of the room faster than you. It's like, what happened? You know what happens? We have no trouble finding ways to spend it. We're just looking for the next thing to spend it on. That's kind of what we do. No end to what's next. The other, the other thing he says, the next one, verse 12, a person who is on the hunt for riches, you won't sleep well. Verse 12 says, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Have you ever just ate way too much and then tried to try to go to bed? <laughs> Doesn't work very well. It's just, there's like noises taking place. There's discomfort going on. It's a bad idea. You don't do that. You eat and then you want to wait two or three hours before you go to bed. I've heard about this. I haven't done. Never made those noises myself. Sleeping with a full stomach doesn't work. Well, what is the rich man's stomach full of? Well, when riches increase, guess what else increases? Anxiety increases, heartburn increases, and, and the vigilance needed to protect what's yours, that increases as well. You have to protect things. You have to make sure it's safe. There's no time for sleep, right? You, you know, you've heard that saying, I'll sleep when I'm dead. No doubt it was said by somebody like this. People who pursue riches continually need to be in what I call protection mode, uh, where you just constantly have to be on high alert to make sure nobody takes your stuff. I, I get that a little bit because I, even when our kids were little and Joy and I would get something new, really nice. I remember one time we got this really nice dining room table and I remember bringing it home and I said to Joy, you know what? I'm just going to take a knife right now and just scratch right down the middle of it, get a permanent marker and just write on the legs and just get it over with. Because I know my kids are going to do that soon. And, you know, I didn't want to be just stuck in protection, but I just wanted to relax. I never did that, but, and it didn't take long for them to do it either. But she almost just had to resolve to that fact. This is going to happen, so don't be in that mode. A person pursuing riches can't relax. I one time went to a guy's house. I was in Coeur d'Alene. I was still fixing copiers. And uh, they told me this house was nice, and it was a really rich man. So I, I'm pulling up, and I see the house, and I thought, it's nice. It was on the lake. I thought, it's nice, but it's not that nice. And then as I come around the corner, I realize I'm looking at the guest house. <laughs> the house was nice. So I'm in there in his office, and, and he's in there, and, and I'm working on the thing. But you're trying to make small talk because you do that when you're in somebody's house. It's always weird. I'm great at small talk, too. So I'm saying, you know, how long have you lived here, and, you know, where would you come from? And, and he was, I'm over here, and he's kind of focused off on, the, you know, the other side of the room. And he would answer, but it was just these quick little five years, California, whatever. He didn't want to talk to me. It was pretty clear. So I thought, what is he so interested in? And I looked, and there's a television on. And it's, it, the sound was even off. I don't think it was even going, but it was one of those financial shows. And he is locked on to this thing. He can't look away. And I realized it's got those little tickers at the bottom that show you how your stocks are doing. 
the I don't even know what they were, Dow Jones and the NASDAQ, and like I know something, I don't, I don't know. But he couldn't, he was so fixated in protection mode trying to figure out. And I'm thinking, how does this guy sleep? Does he just sleep with one eye open, like staring at his TV all night? Probably. Solomon contrasts that guy with a laborer who may not have much, but after a hard day's work, he sleeps like a baby because he's not in protection mode all the time. Well, the next thing Solomon tells us will happen to a person pursuing riches is you'll hurt yourself. Verse 13, there is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his own hurt. Solomon's describing the sin of greed, the uncontrolled longing for more, regardless of what it takes to get it. The thing that they thought would help them is now hurting them. And I couldn't help but think of hoarders. Have you ever watched those shows where people hoard stuff? They think they need this stuff. I have to have this. I can't. That's on sale. I need that. I'm going to need this. I can't get rid of that. I might need it someday. And so you end up just amassing so much stuff that you can't even function anymore. Their stuff now owns them. It's so sad to watch, but this is exactly what he's talking about. People like this end up driving everything good out of their lives. Money and stuff become more important to people and they end up all alone. The next thing he says is that that person who pursues riches, they will never be truly secure. And this sounds so backwards from what we think, doesn't it? But they will never be truly secure. Verse 14, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. We pursue riches because they think they will make us happy, but also because we think they will make us secure for us and for our loved ones. But it's really just an illusion because it can all be lost in an instant. This happened to me when I was working for that large corporation I was talking about. They had a great matching program, a wonderful 401k. And I put money into it, and it was big. I thought, this is great. And then I don't know what happened. It was in the 2000s. Something happened one day, and I've said this before, but my 401k became a 201k. And I just sat there and looked at it and thought, it's just gone. It didn't come back. That was it. I didn't have to do anything. I woke up one day, it was there, and the next day, it was gone. And that's the problem. Stock markets crash. Investments don't pan out. Thieves break in and steal. Fires happen. I mean, there's so many things, and it just vanishes. Poof, gone. It's an illusion. It's like a mirage. It's not real security. And we've been eyewitnesses to this over the last couple of years. It may not have been money, but think about how many people thought that they were secure, even in our own country right now. And look at what's happened and how people feel completely disillusioned and destitute of hope right now because of everything that's gone on. If our security comes from anything other than God, we're setting ourselves up for disappointment. But the security that we have in Jesus can never be taken away from us because Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. You ever just thought about those words before? I think think about who I am first, and then I think, wow. He won't lose us, and we cannot lose him. John 10, I love this verse. In, In verse 28, Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And then he doubles down on this thing and says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of his hand. So here you have Jesus's hand and you have the father's hand. And I like to picture a little holy hand clasp with me inside of it. And nothing's going to get me out of there. Nothing can take me out of there. I am secure there. And, And I love that it's safe from every possible scenario. Paul drives this home in Romans chapter eight, 
which it's almost like Paul said, is there anything? Is there anything that could get me out of the holy hand clasp? Well, let me cover this for you guys. Uh, Paul, starting out in verse 35 of chapter 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? No. Distress? No. Persecution? No. Famine? No. Nakedness? No. Danger? No. Sword? No. Then he goes on in verse 37, in case he didn't hit the thing you were looking for. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. <laughs> he's, I mean, now he's just getting into crazyville. Uh, you know, nor height, nor depth. Really, he's just trying to make the point. Nothing, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That is true security. Amen. I mean, I can stand on that all day long and feel Okay. Better than okay. It sounded like, okay. Fantastic. Sorry. Scratch that from the record. Okay, the next reason he gives why pursuing riches is is a waste of time is he says, you're going to leave it all behind. Verse 15. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came, he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? This is where we get the proverbial idea of you never see a U-Haul in a a funeral procession idea. And I love what Solomon points out here because he's picturing, you know, you picture the race of life. And you can, there's a couple ways we can run this race. We, We can run this race trying to grab as much stuff as we can as we're running and hold on to all of it. And that's what you see the rich person doing, you know, and and I think we do it as well. Burdened down with all this stuff. But Solomon says, but you know what you have to do before you cross the finish line? You got to drop it all because you can't take it over the finish line. It doesn't work that way. You leave it there. So why in the world would we run this race with all that stuff knowing you got to put it down? And for the Christian, knowing that Jesus said, you know, what's on the other side of the finish line for you? Better than what you were carrying. I go to prepare a place for you. Right? I, I have an inheritance for you. And guess what? There's no moths. There's no rust. There's no thieves. There's no fire. There's nothing. There's no IRS agents. I'm not saying that there's no salvation for tax collectors, but there's nobody that's going to take your money. If you're an IRS agent, talk to me afterwards. I love you. There is a plan for your salvation. But nobody's going to take it. Jesus guarantees it. So run unencumbered this race of life. We don't have to carry all this stuff with us. It's meaningless. And verse, uh, the next verse, verse 17, kind of drives it home where he says, if you do this, you'll be a miserable person. Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, in sickness and anger. And this is the sad reality of a person who's made money the object of their affection is they've, they've kind of driven everyone else away. And at the end, they're just alone. In darkness, I love that. He's not even didn't have the lights on now. He's just sitting in darkness, alone, mad, eating his meal. Sounds terrible. I couldn't help but think of the Charles Dickens character, Ebenezer Scrooge, the the greedy miser that was the money meant everything to him. People just and he drove everybody away, right? And then I thought of the opposite of this. Uh, My my mom or Joy's mom and dad, Jim and Claudia, my in laws, uh, they are. This godly Christian couple who has grown old graciously, they are the kind of people that give everything away. Everything. I mean, they've given them to their kids. They've given to their church. They've given to uh, people in need. And they have 
pretty much nothing. If you were to look at their house and their car and you would think, oh, they just, you know, they live such a modest life. And they do, but they have everything they need and they're happy. You know, they live. There's, it, it's just such a cool thing to see somebody like that. So Solomon's going to drive his point home even further at the beginning of chapter six. He's going to describe the person who has it all. And this is the person that we're so envious of. That think about that person in life that just has everything and you think, oh, only to be like that. You know, they've, they've devoted their entire life to pursuing riches. They've achieved their goal. And yet Solomon's going to kind of peel back the curtain so that we can see that it didn't work. They didn't find what they were looking for. And it's such a, a sad waste of a life that Solomon actually calls it evil. So if Ecclesiastes 6 verse 1 says, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. And it's sad to think he has everything, but he's not enjoying his life. And it's important to point out that the power or ability to enjoy things comes from God, and it's actually even linked to God. If you try to find enjoyment apart from him, it's impossible because God's made it impossible. He's wired us as his creation. He's programmed us to only find satisfaction in him. You know, so, so you might find something that for a minute kind of does something, but it won't last. And that's the problem. But with God, it will. So, so in all of this, what God is doing graciously is he's leading us to himself. He's trying to show you, you won't find it there. You won't find it there. You, here's where you'll find it. So he's trying to lead us to himself. Now, the preacher continues with, with a pretty shocking statement here. It's one of those that I, you kind of want to just skip over and hope nobody notices and not say it. But I'm going to say it because it's there. So verse 3 says, if a man fathers a 100 children, that means he's extremely blessed. That was a sign of blessing. So really blessed. And he lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. And he also has no burial. Nobody cares that he's died. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity, and it goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Solomon's making a really stark contrast between one who has it all but is never satisfied and the one who hasn't been able to accumulate anything but still has rest. So he's kind of flipping logic on its head for us. And again, it's, it's, it's an extreme statement, but he wants us to understand this point. We envy the person that has it all, and we wish we could have what they have. And we're brokenhearted over the thought of a stillborn baby who's never been able to experience life. But Solomon's saying, you might have that, you might have that backwards. Maybe we should be brokenhearted over a life wasted, ignoring the creator and pursuing created things. And, that, and we should... Rejoice over a baby who gets to avoid all of that nonsense and go directly into God's presence and enjoy his rest. You know, I, I have to be honest and say the longer that I live in this world, the more that sounds appealing to me than, than hit than this. So I get the point he's making. The baby is the blessed one, not the rich man. We get this so backwards and we got to get it through our heads. That stuff doesn't matter. This stuff matters. Solomon points out that even if the man were to live 2,000 years, it would still be a complete tragedy if God wasn't part of his life. So in other words, time doesn't fix this problem either. 
Money doesn't fix it. Time doesn't fix it. Verse 6, even though he should joy or even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the same place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. So he's, he's saying the same things he's already said, but I like that point. He's, this isn't a reference to heaven or hell when he says don't all go to the same place. He's saying this is a ashes to ashes, dust to dust. The rich guy, he's going to end up like dirt at the end. And you know, the, me, I'm going to end up as dirt, and the poor guy's going to end up as dirt, and we all kind of end up as dirt. That's the point. So it doesn't matter how much you have or how much time you're given. We all end up in the same, you know, that way. Now, heaven or hell is obviously a different different idea, but that's where Solomon's going with this. And then he asks a couple of questions that are a little hard to understand. Verse 8, he says, For what advantage has the wise man over the fool, and what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? I believe the point he's trying to make is that there's no... Um, advantage for the person who makes his life all about the pursuit of money, whether he's wise or a fool, same thing. But for the poor person who does figure out what Solomon's talking about, there's a great advantage. And, and, and he's going to give us an idea of what he's talking about, this conclusion we're going to come to in a minute in verse 9, where he says this, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. So said another way, better is what, what, what's right in front of you than, than all that stuff you think is out there that you need to chase after. So the teacher, in, this, uh, in the points of the chiasm, the, the, the two legs here, he's pointed out um, two things. The first one is that people who pursue wealth will never be satisfied. And the second is that it's evil when a person doesn't enjoy the life that God has gifted him. So what is the answer to all of this? His conclusion is going to be back in verse 18 of chapter 5. This is what he's going to tell us. He's going to say that learning to be joyful for God's daily gifts... And, and being grateful, thankful, and content for what we have is the answer. So verse 18 says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. So he's saying, regardless of what your lot is, now that's the, that's the hard part, is your lot might be different than your lot. You might have very little. You might have a lot. You might live in Sun River, Oregon, and another person might live in, you know, who knows where. But everybody has a different lot that God has given them, and we need to learn to rejoice in what he's given us. The realist would probably say at this point, well, how can we learn to be content in a place like this? You know, in a world that we live in now with all that's going on and all that's happening. How am I supposed to learn to be content here? And the answer is that we need to keep our eyes on the prize. We need to keep our eyes on the finish line. We need to keep our eyes on Christ. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He did this for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. We know this, right? He, he kept his eyes on what was ahead. He looked over the top of all of this at, at what was coming, and that's how he did it. That's how he learned to be content. I love um, Psalm 73. It's a psalm about a guy who did this very thing. He started looking at the world around him. He started looking at the people around him that weren't Christians, and he started to see, what's the point of what I'm doing? The, the evil or prosper? I didn't mean to point at you guys and say the evil, sorry. That was part of the evil or prospering? No, the, <laughs> the wretched or no. Sorry, that was just my hand movements. Evil people are prospering and doing good. And, and people that don't even love God or seem to be doing well. And here I am. I've washed my hands. I've, you know, I've given my life to God. And what have I got? He gets into that mode. Do you ever get into that mode? I do. He got, he got his eyes on the wrong thing. 
and his perspective got completely off. And then he came back into the fellowship of believers and into the house of God. And he got his eyes in the right place again. And everything changed. And I love how he concludes when he says this in, in 73:25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You ever think about that? When we portion something up, you know, okay, we cut it up here. Where's my portion? Here's your portion. You know, I imagine having this conversation with a rich guy. What'd you get? I got riches untold. 400 billion. What'd you get? I got God. That's my portion. I mean, who wins? I got God. That's your portion. Isn't that amazing? I love that the Apostle Paul figured this out. You know, you think about the Apostle Paul's life. It's it's just it's sometimes it's comical to me to think about what his life is like and his attitude and what my life is like and my attitude just, you know, but he learned the secret of contentment and he talks about it in Philippians four. He said, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. Abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, we take that verse and we run wild with it. We, you know, people use it to win Super Bowls and to get the courage to go bungee jumping. That's not what Paul is saying here. You don't grab that verse and say, oh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then, you know, jump out of a plane. That's not the point. The point is what he's saying here. Poor. I can do that if I have Christ. Hungry. I can do that if I have Christ. Sick. Even with the big C word that nobody wants to COVID, I can do that if I have Christ. Loneliness, depression. Paul, think about Paul's life. I can do that if I have Christ. Take Christ out of the equation. I'm going to be sucking my thumb under my desk in the fetal position. I will not be able to do anything. But with Christ, I can do this. Paul figured that out. And I, I can't help but think of what it got him through. An attitude of contentment in every circumstance is something the church needs desperately right now. And I love that Paul brings this out in 1 Timothy 6. A lot of this parallels what Solomon's saying. Listen to this. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Notice that Solomon didn't say having money is wrong. I want to make sure that that's clear. He said loving money, pursuing money is wrong. That's what's evil. God has entrusted some people with wealth because he knows they can handle it. That's their lot. And at the same time, though, he expects them to use it in a way that honors and glorifies him. So we read further down in in 1 Timothy 6, 17. As for the rich in this present age, he just addresses them. Charge them not to be haughty or proud. Not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. 
The parallel is what we're looking at in Ecclesiastes so well. God wants his people to be generous, cheerful, uh, giddy about giving. Just as Jesus said, it's better to give than to receive. And if you've ever been on the, you know, the, the giving end, you know exactly what that's like. And it's wonderful to receive too, but to give is so good. And I'm grateful for the, the, the level of generosity that we see in, in this church. The way you guys care for each other and meet each other's needs is just, it blows my mind. Now, the ironic thing about all of this is most of us probably don't see ourselves or consider our, ourselves as wealthy. And yet, if you were to compare us with the rest of the world and, and with the rest of people throughout eight, the ages, um, we're incredibly rich. I just, I, I actually thought about some of these things that I have and I enjoy that I take for granted. And, I, you know, I have excess food in my pantry that I'm never going to get to. I'm going to throw it out before it actually, even, I have a daughter that helpfully comes home from college and goes through the pantry for us. You know, expired, expired, expired. If she didn't do that, they'd be here the next year when she got here. I get to take a hot shower every day. I get to sleep on memory foam. I can just imagine the Apostle Paul going, what do you sleep on? <laughs> Paul, it's called memory foam. It's like this cocoon of love that you just sink into. You know, you can just picture him going, you know, what's wrong with you people? I have access to medicine. I have more clothes than I can ever wear. And on and on it goes. And these are luxuries that we take for granted. We act like we have nothing. But we have everything. We should learn to be content even now, even in everything that's going on right now. You can turn on the news. You can focus on so much to be discontent about. Stop it. <laughs> right? Stop it. The Bob Newhart routine. But it's good. Stop it. Start looking at the truth of what God has given us and learn to be content. Now, in that sense, we are wealthy. But the truth is that God has not entrusted most of us with the same kind of abundance that Solomon enjoyed. And so um, I would just kind of say most of us are probably what I would call daily bread people. Uh, that comes from Proverbs 30, verse 7 starts out, and, and King Agur says this, Two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Our daily bread. Jesus, when he told his disciples how to pray, what did he say to them? How, how do you pray to the Father? Father, give us this day our daily bread. Give us what we need for today. And, of course, this reminds us of God feeding his children. In, you know, After they left Egypt, you have this large mass of people that goes into the desert you know, there's no jack-in-the-box out there or anything like that. What are you going to do to feed all these folks? Well, God's not limited in his provision. He can do anything. And so every morning, there was this bread that would come down from heaven, and it would land on the ground. Breakfast is served for all of these people. And I love, I can imagine the first day it showed up, them going, they, they see it. And, and manna actually means, what is it? Which is pretty hilarious to think about. So you picture this, you know, the Hebrew, manna. Manna, manna, manna. And the name stuck. That's what they went with, manna. There it is. Here's the, the funny thing about it, though, is that if you tried to hoard it, if you tried to get more than your daily bread, guess what happened to it? Spoiled, it rotted, it stunk. It became a, something you wanted to get out of your life quickly. Gross. But interestingly, on the sixth day, God said, hey, guess what? 
on this day, gather twice as much as you need because I don't want you to work. I want you to be able to rest on the Sabbath. So take twice as much. Now, now I'm not real smart, but I would think, hey, I tried that on Monday and my tent smelled really bad. Give it a try, right? Guess what would happen? It kept on that day. And it didn't even show up on the ground that day. So if you wanted to go out and get some, you know, some freshy, fresh manna, you couldn't. It was just, you had to go with that. And it just reminds me of this. God knows what we need. He knows when we need it. And he knows how to provide it. Do you believe that, children of God? He knows what we need. He knows when we need it. And he knows how to provide it. And he's a good father who takes care of his kids. So we don't need to hoard. We don't need to chase after riches. We can enjoy our daily bread and find rest in him. We have a choice between two ways of life. We can spend our life pursuing wealth, which will never satisfy us and which will most likely pull us away from God and which will ultimately lead us to disaster. Or we can spend our lives pursuing God and being grateful for his generous provision, his faithful provision and enjoy our daily bread. You have to choose your master. You can't, you can't serve two of them. The Bible says you're either going to choose money and serve money or you're going to serve God. So I would ask you, what are you pursuing? What are you, where are you looking for your happiness and your security? If you look where the world is looking, you're chasing after wind. It's not there. If you're looking to God to find your enjoyment in him and what he's, what he's given to us, we'll find rest, freedom, contentment in this life and in the life to come. So seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to our lives as we need them. We're going to take communion today. And of course, the idea of our daily bread is a reference to Jesus who boldly proclaimed to the crowds, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not be hungry and whoever believes in me will never thirst. This is the bread that will satisfy us. This is the bread that will give us what we need. We are sinners before a holy God, and we have no hope apart from what this table does for us. This is Christ for you. This is his body broken for you. His blood shed for you as your substitute. What should have happened to you? He said, I will do. I will do for them. We need to trust in that for our salvation. If you've never done that, we would invite you to to do that now. And enjoy communion. This is a table that's set for believers. I'm going to pray. And then we're going to invite you up. If you're new here, we come up. We, we get it. And then you can go back and just take it as you'd like to. We don't, we don't do it all together. We just pray, spend time worshiping the Lord, and then we'll sing a song. Father, you have been so good to us. We can't even begin to say thank you enough times because of all that you've done for us. We just think about what you've given us in an earthly way. But more importantly, you gave your son for sinners who who were your enemies so that we could have life and relationship with you. So thank you for what this table represents. Thank you for Jesus willingly going to the cross and allowing his body to be broken and his blood to be shed for us. Lord, may help us to be the most thankful, grateful people on the planet and help us to take this message of salvation to everyone that will hear it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.